Hey there, you are listening to the New Community Podcast. And my name is Justin Bowers. I serve as the pastor of New Community Buckcannon, and we are thrilled that you're with us. I wanted to let you know that right now we have a momentum shifter in our church going on, and we would love for you to be a part of it. We are right in the process of launching what we call the New Community Network and pressing ourselves forward as a ministry into the future with a vision to light up the mountains of West Virginia with the hope of the gospel. So we would love to have you be a part of that. If you are able, if you are interested, log on to our website at www.newcommunitywv.com and click the giving tab and help us continue this ministry that we so love and we're so thrilled to be a part of. Now enjoy the podcast. No pressure with that at all. Um, hey, good morning, new community. I found the place. By the way, I went to the old place first. It's been a while. See a few familiar places, uh, faces here. Um, in case we haven't met, my name is Chris Campbell, and I'm a longtime friend of, I guess it's Dr. Justin Bowers now, right? <laughs> Do you guys call him Dr. J? Would you consider calling him Dr. J for me? <laughs> Uh, that, Justin and I go way back, and here's the problem. It's like I knew him when he was in middle school, so it's a little bit of a stretch for me mentally just yet to get my mind around the whole doctorate thing, but uh, I couldn't be more happy for him. A lot of respect, of course, goes towards him, and, uh, and I always appreciate the opportunity to come over and worship uh, with you guys, and specifically when Justin reached out to me a couple months ago and said, hey, we're going to be in a, a series I'd like for you to drop into. It's called Just Okay is Not Okay. And the big idea was, you, I think you guys are exploring the idea of emotional health and wellness and how your spirituality, your faith in Christ, directly feeds into that. And, uh, you know, when I go, I love to preach and teach the Word of God, and uh, we're going to do that today. Uh, but specifically, Justin asked me to, to put on uh, my uh, clinician hat. I'm, a, I'm an LPC. I'm a professional counselor. And he'd like for me to give a few comments just from you know, what we can see about just human behavior and what impacts us are in, our, in our emotional wellness and how the Bible truly integrates with that and how God has a plan to elevate that in our lives. So that's what we're going to try to do today. And uh, if you brought a Bible, if you got an app, go ahead and pull up 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, we're going we're gonna to start with a passage in the New Testament uh, that I think is going to be a super amount of encouragement for us, and we're going to jump into a, a great story, a Mother's Day story in the Old Testament in Genesis, uh, but first, Second Corinthians chapter 1. Now, um, we're going to start, and, um, and I'm going to read this to you. We'll probably back up and read this again, because you've got to catch the idea that the author is trying to make here. So Second Corinthians, in case you don't know, was written by a guy, uh, the Apostle Paul, and he wrote most of the New Testament, he did most of the initial missionary work of the church as they were moving out from Jerusalem under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And uh, Paul founded a church in Corinth that is like modern-day Las Vegas, okay? And uh, people, people responded to his message, and he established some leadership and core community there and got them set up and then, met, and then went on with his team to plant other churches throughout the region. And, and word got back to him that this group of Christians had gotten, like, really jacked up, okay? They had, they had made, <laughs> uh, you know, if you want to read about it for yourself, look in 1 Corinthians, because the first letter he writes to them, he's got to lean in hard against them. 
because they're making some decisions, they're reverting back to old ways of living, and it's not just complicating their lives. The fallout of the church emotionally in their relationships and so forth is just becoming devastating. And so that first letter sort of puts in a, a state of correction, and thankfully they heard uh, his advice, they heeded to his warning and direction, and now he gets to follow up with a second letter to where he gets to commend them you know, for the steps that they've taken to not only right their community, but to really uh, you know, begin to walk in a way that uh, puts them in a place where they're the recipients of, of all of God's goodness and his blessing. And so this, this, this letter starts off with quite the greeting. Uh, the Apostle Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies, the God of all comfort. The Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort. Now, if you carry a hard copy or if you've got an app where you can highlight, I would just encourage you, you probably want to underline or mark that word comfort because it's going gonna, it's gonna to appear again and again over the next few verses. God is the Father of mercies, and he's the God of all comfort. Now, that word's interesting because we have an idea when we hear comfort that is all about 21st century. It's all about our English vernacular. It's our, it's, you know, that word may mean a pat on the head or that may mean a luxury item that you enjoy. But in the original ancient language uh, that this word is translated from, it actually has a mathematical base to it. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to strain your brain here for a second to think back to geometry or maybe some grade school uh, you know, mathematics, and I promise it won't be too tough. But the word that we hear Paul saying, God of all comfort, is this word periclesis. And it's where we get the word parallel from in mathematics. Remember that? Like you remember having to identify like a parallelogram, right? And the idea of parallel with two lines is what? What does that mean? They never intersect. They're side by side indefinitely, right? Unless there's a vector that crosses them or whatever. So there's this idea of coming alongside and paralleling another person. It's, that's the idea where, they, where a Greek person would talk about comfort. They would say periclesis, and it would mean this idea of, an, of a, somebody accompanying somebody else to help, to console, to advise, to encourage, to empower, to direct. And you know what it looks like? You guys have already seen it this morning. Had a special Mother's Day prayer, and I bowed my head. And when I looked up again at Amen, there was a paraclete right up here. Do you guys see it? And that's the strength of comfort, the, the act of just being present, of coming alongside somebody else for the sake of just offering support, help, encouragement, consolation, you get it? So this God that Paul is proclaiming to us today, he is the father of all mercies and the God of all comfort. And when you hear that word comfort, that's what I want you to think of. He goes on to say, this God who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now, if you're keeping track, that's two verses and five times this word, periclesis, comfort, is being emphasized. Would you say Paul's trying to make a point? Right? And, and here's, here's an important aspect of it. Paul mentions twice the reality of affliction in our life. 
And that's, a, that's sort of a general term that means mental and emotional duress. It could come through persecution. It could come through hardship of circumstances. It could come through uh, conflict with other people. But how many of you have been around Christianity enough, and now at this point in your life, how many of you have been around Christianity long enough to know that when a person puts their faith in Jesus, God doesn't automatically bubble wrap them and insulate them from pain? Do you guys know this? All God's people said amen, right? You know, because we're, we're still imperfect people living in an imperfect world trying to do life imperfectly, and it gets clumsy, it gets awkward, it gets painful, it gets hurtful. And yet, in the middle of any of affliction that we would face, God has an abundance of comfort, and he not only comforts us for the sake of helping and encouraging us, but what? He does it in a way that now gives us the capacity to help others with the same type of comfort. That's pretty good news, right? It, it goes on. The Apostle Paul says, Just as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Now, that word suffering there is the word passion. And we just came through the Easter season. Maybe you've heard of you know, the, the passion of the cross, the passion of the Christ. It's the extreme suffering that Jesus Christ underwent during that time of betrayal, trial, the, the crucifixion. And that, that passion, that suffering hit him on all three levels, body, soul, and spirit. And even though we too, as Christ followers, we may be subjected at times to suffering that hits us spiritually, that hits us emotionally, that hits us physically, just as Christ triumphed with an abundance of comfort, he dispels that to us, and it's for us as well. This keeps getting better news, right? The apostle goes on, and he says... Even if we, in other words, his apostolic team, his, those first century church leaders, even if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when, pa when you patiently endure the same suffering that we suffer. So not only can we, we learn from you know, our own comfort that the Lord you know, provides us, but as other believers, as we're connected in community and we see how God comforts an individual, we see how God uses the community to comfort each other, it gives us the opportunity again to grow in our understanding and trust that he is the father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He comes alongside us, we come alongside each other. Does that make sense? It's pretty awesome. So, therefore, our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. All right, now, here's what I'd like to do this morning. I'm going to talk to you about how comfort, how, the, how you understanding how God comforts and how you being open to that sort of comforting in your life will regulate you emotionally in any situation that you face. And to get us there, what I want to do is, is I'm going to put you through just a really simple exercise. So uh, I, and I, I work with a lot of different people as a professional counselor, but I prefer to work with, with adolescents, young people, and I, and I love the opportunity to move into marginal areas of, of help and where kids are in the margins and they're in crisis and so forth like that. But regardless of the age, if somebody comes in uh, to my office and they're under duress, they're there because of some sort of crisis in their life or there's some sort of emotional disorder. You know, they're having anger issues, they're, 
they're maybe depressed or there's a, a phobia that's taken over them or just the stress is through the roof and their panic attacks. What I try to do is I try to assess, okay, well, how well are they emotionally? What's the current state of their emotional health? And I'm going to have you do that individually here this morning. Now, you're not going to have to share it with anybody. This will be totally private. You don't have to share it with me or anything. But here's the, here's the way you do it. I want you to think about emotionally where you are and how you are right now at this point in your life. How you doing emotionally? And I want you to scale that somewhere between 1 and 10, with 1 being awful and 10 being awesome. Okay, so just take a personal inventory right now. You don't have to write it down or anything. Just get that number in your head. How are you doing emotionally at this point in your life between 1 and 10, between awful and awesome? Now, as you're thinking about that, let me tell you what usually happens. When we go to evaluate our emotional wellness, usually the metric that we most commonly reach for is happiness. We'll say, okay, well, how am I doing emotionally? Okay, well, how happy am I? Okay, that may be a little bit of a turnoff for you as a Christian because you're like, okay, well, happiness is based on my external circumstances, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for joy. Okay, good joy. That's the more spiritual answer with that, right? Uh, so, so joy, how joyful am I? Or, or some of you here, you, know, may, you may have, have learned about you know, the way that God produces certain fruit in our lives, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, meekness, self-control. And you may grab any of those or a combination of those, and that's going to be the metric that you're sort of using this morning between 1 and, and 10 to sort of rate yourself emotionally. But here's what I would suggest to you whether it's happiness or joy or love or peace or whatever, that's probably a better measurement for your quality of life and not so much your emotional strength or wellness. What I would suggest to you this morning is the better way to, me to measure how you're doing emotionally is how resilient are you. What's your resilience? And what I mean by that is, is, is what type of sustaining strength do you have to keep a measure of hope at the front of your mind? Can you sustain hope despite circumstances that would try to defeat you? When I think of resiliency, I think of a person who, would be, who should be drowning in their own troubles, but yet they keep popping back up to the surface. They suck in air, they tread for a little bit, they look on the horizon for land to swim towards, or they look for help. Or it's a person who has suffered setback after setback after setback after setback, and they get knocked down, and somehow they find the strength to stand back up and dust themselves off, and they, uh, they channel their inner Steve Rogers, Captain America, I can do this all day, you know. And, uh, and that's, that's sort of the definition of resiliency. And what we know with people who are in crisis, especially teens who are in crisis, is if you can build into resiliency they have more than a fair chance to self-correct and to make it, to start pushing through and to really see better days ahead. And here's the thing. The number one way that a person increases in their resiliency, the number one way that I could build resiliency as a counselor in another person is, get this, it's comfort. It's comfort as the Bible describes it. Now, in the, in the, in the world of psychology, there's a clinical word for it, that's not comfort. They call it attunement. Attunement, right? Don't overthink that word. It just means tuning into somebody else. 
If, if, uh, if I walked in this morning uh, with a guitar and I told Josh, hey, guess what? I'm going to lead worship with you. <laughs> He'd be like, great, what? You know, uh, but the first thing that, that he would make sure is that my guitar is what? In tune with his, right? So I can't be playing a flat or a sharp up here because you're not going to get harmony. It's not going to be successful. So when, when you and I are looking to you know, comfort somebody else, or we're looking, you know, to build re- resiliency, what we got to do is we got we to gotta tune in with them. Attunement. It's just, it's the biblical principle of comfort, but it's just got this psychological term to it. And here's, here's how it works. Attunement is just you and I harnessing three important aspects of, emo- of emotional needs that everybody needs, especially when they're in crisis. Attunement is simply just empathy, assurance, and assistance. I want you to think of a time when you were under some sort of duress and emotionally you'd been bumped and you were just trying to be, you know, a little agile and trying to get your, yourself regulated, trying to get some stability. Maybe you were in full-blown crisis. Maybe you've gone through some sort of trauma and you're looking for recovery, but there are triggers that can just sort of set you back. And in that moment, if you're really honest with yourself, when you're triggered and you're in crisis, you don't need somebody to step in and fix it and tell you what to do. What you need more than anything else is what? Empathy, assurance, and some assistance. You need some comfort. You need somebody to come alongside and parallel you, right? Empathy is not sympathy. It's not compassion. We can give those things, but oftentimes it's in a condescending way because we're, we're, we're looking to reach down and help a brother out, right? Empathy is taking the time to get on that person's level and to relate to them emotionally by just understanding where they are. And in understanding where they are, you and I take the time to respect what's going on inside of them. That's, that's empathy. And on top of empathy, when you combine that with assurance, you begin to really make a difference because assurance comes alongside and says, listen, I know you're in deep weeds right now and you can't see too far ahead, but from where I am, I can see the horizon and I can tell you this gets better. I can tell you if we keep moving in this way, it's going to be all right. You're going to be all right. So you got empathy, you got assurance, and the third thing was assistance because at the right time, it is appropriate to say, you know what? I'm going to roll up my sleeves and jump in here what I have is yours if it will help, and we can walk this out together. So when it comes, to, whether you want to call it comfort or whether you want to call it attunement, the idea of paralleling somebody, the idea of having somebody to help you comes down to what three basic components? Are you paying attention to me this morning? What's the first one? Empathy, assurance, assistance. We're very good. Very good. The 11 a.m. I'm sure will not be this good. All right. So... So how does that work out in conversation? Because, I mean, you know, we, we don't just script this out and, and tell a person, here's what we're about to do. I'm about to comfort you. So be prepared. I'm going to empathize. and what? No. In, in real-life conversation, it just comes down to, to this. I see you. I hear you. I understand this has got to be difficult for you. I'm glad to be here with you. Let's do this together. That's exactly what happened this morning, right? What a perfect object lesson for that. I see you. I hear you. 
I understand this has got to be difficult for you. I'm glad to be here with you. Let's walk this out together. One of the ways that I see this work and, and, you know, the whole idea of comfort and attunement, uh, especially with dealing with high-risk kids, is um, uh, I work in a variety of circumstances, but nowhere probably more intense than uh, a Native American reservation that I'm very invested in uh, in South Dakota. It's a Cheyenne uh, River uh, reservation, the Lakota Sioux people. I've been involved in a, in a ministry there indirectly and directly for about 10 years. And it's a really, it's a really cool work. Uh, we've established a, an academy. It's called Windswept Academy, and it's an opportunity for Native uh, young people to have uh, a chance at, at education that is tailor-suited for them. It gets them prepped to go as far as they want, either on in college or in a, in a technical vocation. But at the same time, it infuses it with the gospel of Jesus in a way that respects the Native tradition. So in other words, we're not pushing the white man gospel at them, right? And, and, uh, and, and it's just astounding how, how God over time has grown, you know, this academy. And, uh, and the way that I serve is that once a semester I show up on the scene and, I, and I, I'm sort of the in-house, you know, counselor, whether it's guidance counseling or just counseling, right? And I get to do mental health screening on kids and figure out, you know, if they're, are they placed right in classes, expectations, and so forth. But I do a lot of Bible teaching. I do a lot of one-on-one counseling. I do a lot of group therapy while I'm out there. And I hit, I hit, the, I hit the campus uh, twice a year, once each semester. And uh, a couple years back, one of the most extreme cases that, uh, that I've had to, to deal with, and you guys, can, you guys, surely everybody in this room have heard just a little bit of the statistics of Native American reservations. It's tough. Very tough to grow up there. I, uh, the, the word was I was going to be working with the elementary kids, but when I, when I, <laughs> when I got to Eagle Butte, they said, uh, hey, we have this new high schooler, and we think we need your help. You know? And uh, so anyway, they, they, got this, they had this new co-ed, this girl, at 15 years old, and basically Windswept was her last stop, man because she had been bumped multiple times out of the reservation school. They had tried to do different alternative education plans with her, nothing. Uh, she lived uh, with her mom, other bunches of relatives and stuff, as that usually is in the, in, the, in the same household. Mom, not a believer, not a Christian, but it's like, I'm at my wit's end. Maybe these crazy Christians can straighten this kid out, right? And so, so she, she enrolls her kid, and from the beginning of the semester, this girl is a disruptor, man. I mean, she's bringing contraband onto, onto campus, and she's stirring up trouble with the girls and chasing the boys and just in the classroom, just this defiant and just, uh, just chaos, right? And so, uh, so I'm like, okay, you know, it's like most of the teens I work with, they, you know, that first meeting is obligatory. They've got to meet with me, right? So I'm like, okay, right, we can do this. So they scheduled a time for her to meet with me, and she comes in, and as she's, she's coming in, like, I don't have this happen to me very often at all. But it was like in the deepest part of my heart, like I just sensed the Holy Spirit say, today is the harvest, keep your focus. And I thought, oh my goodness, God, please don't let me Charlie Brown this. You know, <laughs> it's, like, it's like, oh no. And, and because here's this kid and she like presents, like she is agitated. I'm saying that nicely. I mean, she is like upset and she's got to see me. And, uh, you know, and, and so it's like she's, she's upset, she's agitated, she's emotionally distraught. And it's like, okay, how do, you, how do you start with like a hostile client like that? You start with attunement. I see you, I hear you. Wow, I understand this has got to be difficult. Thank you so much. 
you know, for just sharing that with me. And I, I think maybe together, I think maybe we can figure this out. Empathy, what else? Assurance, what else? Assistance. So by the end of that session, she's been heard, she's been validated, she's allowed someone to come alongside, and literally she says, okay, I need this Jesus person, what do I need to do? So I get to lead her through this prayer, right? Confession, repentance, receiving Jesus. And it was one of those moments, you know, where you say, it's like sometimes when a person, you know, believes on Jesus by faith, it's like, you know that, okay, they've, they've done this, it's real, but it's sort of like days or weeks before you start noticing a difference, you know? But like when we said amen, it was like, oh my goodness, there's a brand new person sitting right in front of me. Like the countenance had changed. It just seemed like, a, you know, a thousand pounds of weight had been lifted off of her. Like the new nature that God had given her was like whew, manifesting right there in front of me. And she was elated, different person. But here's the thing. It didn't change her circumstances at all. And during the course of that session, she had not only detailed a, a history of abuse, but she had revealed that she had been sexually assaulted recently and the perpetrator was still at large. It had gone unreported, and this person still had access to the family, to her, and so forth. And I said, you know, I'm a mandatory reporter, and I don't care if I'm on the reservation or off the reservation. The ethical thing to do is like, okay, we got to tell somebody about this. And the amazing thing is, is like when faith is, 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 is activated in your life, and you have the sense that there is comfort there's, there's a paraclete, there's, you have support that's there. You can do very hard things if you can believe, if you can have hope that it's going to move you in the right direction. And so this young woman swallowed hard and said, yeah, I, I suppose you're right. And so we went through the right protocol, you know, told her mom, told the school administration, told the authorities, and sort of got things set up that week to where, you know, the people who were there you know, throughout the year with her could come alongside and continue the work that she and I had started. And it was awesome. It was awesome to see that. And that's, that's the way that God works in real time. But I want to show you where it's all started all the way back in the book of Genesis. And so if you got, if you got a Bible, I want you to turn back to Genesis 16. And I'm going to show you that God has always been the father of mercies. He's always been the God of this comfort who comes alongside and is willing to give empathy, assurance, assistance. He is there to help you. He is there to encourage you. He is there to console you. He is there to empower you. He is there to exhort you and direct you in the right way with great gentleness. So we're only going to look at a couple verses, but the background of this story is we got a, a runaway teenage mom. Her name is Hagar which is not a very pretty name, <laughs> but I'm assuming she's just a lovely mom. And, uh, and it's like, so you sort of pick up, it's like, she's on the fly, man. She's running. Well, what's she running from? Well, once upon a time, she had been picked up as a servant by two very powerful people, Abram and his wife, Sarai. And Abram and Sarai, has, were, they were a couple that God had tapped for a very special mission. God spoke to Abram and said, I want you to gather all your gear and all your belongings and your herds and your servants, and I want you to head from where you are, which is in ancient times a sort of modern-day Iraq. He said, I want you to head west because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless you with wealth and resources. You're going to be nomadic, but I'm going to move you around a geographical location that your, your descendants will occupy in massive numbers. Because, Abram, I'm going to create for you, from you, 
a whole new nation of people that's going to execute the next step of my rescue plan for planet Earth. I'm going to make of you a people, a nation so great, so numerous, that it's going to be like trying to count the stars in the skies or the, or the, you know, the grains of sand on the seashore. And Abram's like, okay, but my wife and I, like, we're really old. <laughs> and we don't have any kids. And God's like, trust this. I've got it. It's going to happen. So they did it. But about 10 years in, and they're childless, Sarai's looking at her husband going, like, you're a good dude and all, but I don't think you listen very well, you know? And all the women said, yes, amen. You know, I mean, that's, that's sort of like, you know, our MO as husbands, right? It's like, Sarah's like, I sent him down to the village for butter and milk. He comes back with a new tool and tell me what a deal he got on these sandals. I don't see butter. I don't see milk. He won't leave the lid down. I mean, I just, you know, he doesn't listen very well. So I'm thinking God may have told him, hey, head west people, but maybe we need to kickstart this because we don't have an heir. We don't have anybody to transfer all this stuff to. So Sarah, she hits on this plan. She said, you know what? We picked up this young girl from Egypt, doesn't have any family or anything. I think we traded a couple camels for her. She, she's strong. She's healthy. She's probably between 16, 19 years old, you know. She'd make a perfect surrogate, right? This is ancient times. They don't have in vitro fertilization and all that stuff. We'll keep it PG, but you, you get it, right? And so there was a tradition there where Abram could take her on as sort of a, another wife, and he could he could create with her a child, and then when that child is born, it would immediately be placed on Sarai's lap, and she would declare it as hers. Pretty straightforward. And I doubt that this Egyptian servant girl, Hagar, had any choice in the matter whatsoever. Right? But here she is. She finds herself pregnant. And then I think it dawned on her at one point how her life was radically going to change. Because she realized she was carrying the heir of not only the wealth, but the promises of God. And Abram and Sarai were way older than her. Like, there's no way this old woman's going to be able to nurse this kid. So when she declares him hers, big deal, he's given back to me, and he's going to latch and attach to me. And there's no way this old woman has the energy or the balance to chase around a toddler. That's going to be me. And again, I'm going to build this incredible bond with this child. And there's no way this old woman, this old man, are going to live too much longer. And so about the time this child is inheriting all of this blessing, guess who's going to be the most important person in his life? You follow me? And teenagers are wonderful. There are many things, but very few of them are discreet at that point, <laughs> right? That's sort of something that happens later. And I don't know at what point that Sarai looked at Hagar as a servant and asked her to do something. And Hagar sort of maybe rolled her eyes or took an attitude or maybe it was a tone or maybe she just didn't do it. But Sarai thought, oh my, what have we done? Abram, what have you done? This is your fault. You can read it, right? And he's, she is like, this we can't tolerate, this has got to, you know, and she sort of freaks out, and Abram's like any, like any husband does, uh, whatever we need to do to keep you quiet, just go do it, right? And so the Bible says that Sarai dealt harshly with Hagar, 
And I don't know what she did to try to break this kid down, but evidently it was so bad that she took off. She ran. And in verse 7 of this chapter, as she's running, it says, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she says, I'm fleeing my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Now, um, this is so cool. And you've got to give me a couple of minutes to just tell you what's going on here. The angel of the Lord is a dude that appears periodically in the Old Testament. He would just sort of materialize from nowhere. He looked otherworldly, but people understood that there were sort of angelic beings, and so they would, they would sort of call out an angel when they encountered an angel. But this guy was something altogether different because he had this otherworldly appearance, but yet he spoke with God's authority as if he were God himself. And they couldn't figure out, you know, okay, well, you know, who is this person? So anytime he shows up, they would just say an angel of the Lord. Okay, now... We know full disclosure in the New Testament and so forth. You know who that is? It's Jesus. It's Jesus before taking on physical flesh in a, in, you know, in, a, in a virgin's womb and being born in a manger. Jesus would interject at key moments in human history to keep things on track. And get this. This is the first time he shows up. It's the first time he shows up. And guys, you need to understand this. Hagar plays no essential role in the story of salvation or redemption, like, at all. At all. That was a miscalculation, right? Like, she is not an essential role player in this storyline that God is creating to save you and me and the, rest of the, and the rest of the world. But yet, here is the angel of the Lord, his first appearance setting a precedence, and what is he doing? He's comforting He's coming alongside a person who is clueless about not only who he is, but who the God Jehovah is. Because at this point in time, people have already started to, to get into all kinds of idolatry. It's, it's phenomenal because up until the point of Noah, people didn't, they weren't practicing idolatry because everybody knew who God the creator was. They were just rebelling. After Noah and the hard reset, people didn't commit idolatry because you'd have been laughed at. There's only one God, but it was at this moment at the Tower of Babel where God, you know, confused everybody's language and sort of dispersed everybody. You start seeing idolatry start to happen, and God's saying, okay, I got a plan for this. And he starts to interject, and here he is, the angel of the Lord, appearing to a non-essential person to comfort them. Do you know why? Because every single person matters to God. Every single person matters to God. He loves us all. He was, he was there before even the time we were formed in our mom's womb. He knew us, had a plan for us, wired us a certain way. And he is showcasing that in spectacular fashion. And he comes alongside and he says what? What are you doing here? He starts to draw her out in conversation. I see you. I hear you. I understand this has got to be difficult. I'm here for you. Let's do this together. He's offering her comfort attunement. He's offering her what? Empathy, assurance, and assistance. Spectacular, right? Story gets better. So he says, 
I'm going to ask you to do a very hard thing. You know, he wasn't asking her, okay, now you got to go get the authorities involved, you know, uh, like my situation on the reservation. He's saying, uh, you got to go back and submit to the authority that's above you. Because, guys, get this, uh, God always works through the hierarchy of leadership that he has ordained on planet Earth. So if you think there's another way to sort of get out of your mess other than submitting to the rightful authority over you, that's a bad idea. And the precedence is being set here. So the angel of the Lord said, go back and submit to Sarai. And he also said, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Hagar, you're going to have a son. You're pregnant, you're going to have a son. And when you have him, you shall call his name Ishmael. That name means God hears. Isn't that great? So he's comforting her. He's coming alongside her. He's attuned. I hear you so much. You are going to name your son Ishmael. And he promises her every promise that he gave Abram. I will take your son and make his descendants as numerous as well. And so she received that, that promise and the conclusion was, after that, she called the name of the Lord El Royi, the God who sees me. Because she said, truly, truly, he has seen me. Now, you have to understand that it's not just the first point that Jesus appears in the scripture and is to some pagan runaway teenage girl. But also, it's the first point where God begins to counteract the idolatry that's going on by he's introducing himself by very sacred names. It's the first sacred name we get of God, El Royi, the God who sees. And in that moment of comfort, there's not only encouragement, help, and, and consolation, and all those good things, but there is revelation that happened to her. So that in a moment, she spoke prophetically in a way that she recognized God like no other person had before and said, he's a God who sees. He's a God who sees. And that space where she recognized him was forever known as Be'er Lahad Roi, the God who sees. And it was, a, it was a rest stop on the way from ancient Palestine to Egypt. And everybody that went by there stopped to get a drink, and they knew the name of this tremendous God who parallels, who comforts, who comes after us. That's astonishing, right? Let me tell you something. When you stop and think about he is the father of mercies and the God of all comfort, and you begin to read the scriptures through, that same pattern that happened right there in Genesis 16 repeats, 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 repeats. I love the gospel of John. I like Matthew, Mark, Luke just fine, but John is one that I just love because there are things that Jesus did that would have been lost without John's confirmation. And the interesting thing about, God's, about John's gospel is that John picks up on this idea of comfort, attunement, paralleling somewhere else, somebody else. You see it in John 4, where Jesus goes out of his way to go through Samaria to find yet another distraught person. The woman at the well. Do you remember that story? You see it again later on as a woman is caught in adultery. She's an emotional mess. She's been traumatized. And in that moment, he does not pick up a stone and throw at her. But what does he do? I see you. I hear you. I understand. I'm here with you. We got this together. 
It's awesome, right? And it's such an important aspect of who God is and God's desire to comfort us in a way that builds resiliency within us and gives us victory that, again, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he wants to emphasize this with his, with his crew, with his entourage, because what they are about to witness is going to shake them to their core, right? And in this, in this back and forth, this dialogue in John chapter 14, listen to some of the things that Jesus says here. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Wait a second, you're leaving? Yeah, I'm leaving, but it's going to be okay, because whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Okay, but you're still not staying. Yeah, 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 but it gets better. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. It's the same word, parakletos, a comforter, a person who will come and who will parallel your life. But this is really great news, that he may be with you forever because he is the spirit of truth. And the world cannot receive him because it neither sees of him or knows him. But you know him, just like Hagar had that revelation, and she's like El Royi, the God who sees. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And I feel like so many times in our life when we're distraught, as a Christian, as a non-Christian or whatever, we're running about frantically just trying to find help, trying to find help, trying to find help. Or we're on the run, right? We've been spooked and we're running as fast as we can or we're, or we're ready to fight anybody who would come near us or we're just in full-blown freeze mode, right? We're incapacitated by our, by our emotions. And it's good for me to be reminded, it's wonderful to have the opportunity to share with you that you don't have to look for God, He's coming for you because that's who He is. He's El Roy He's the God who sees. He's the comforter. He's the one who comes beside and steps in and gives you empathy, assurance, and assistance. He builds your resiliency because you can find the hope, maybe not in your circumstances, maybe not in your own strength, but in the one who's walking with you. So I, I left that semester, and I returned the next semester and could not wait to interface with this student again because I just wanted to hear. You know, I, I kept in touch. I knew that they had alerted the authorities filed a report, and, uh, and I knew that the investigation had begun. And so, uh, so I was anxious to see how things turned out. So I, I go back, and first morning I'm there, students are coming in on campus, and I'm, and I'm specific, I'm glad to see them all, but I'm like watching for her, right? And so she came in a little late, and, uh, and, and you could just see the expression was not good. I mean, it was, you know, wasn't the old person, but there was just like, there was a level of burden that she just carried it right on her face. And, uh, and so I talked to the headmaster and said, hey, uh, you know, I feel like things aren't well. No, they're not quite well. I said, okay, well, can we work her into the schedule so I can spend? Yep, we can do that. Okay. So a little later in the day, I get to go one-on-one -on -one, uh, with, this, with this girl again. And I sit down with her and I said, well, tell me, tell me what's going on. And she said, Chris, she said, when you left, everything fell right into place, you know, 
We filed the report. They started the investigation. This guy picked up on it, and he took off. Got off the reservation, even, even got far enough away to where there was no jurisdiction because he, he knew that if he was around, there was a risk that he was going to be arrested, prosecuted, etc. And she said, you know, the, the, you know uh, the, the teachers here, they were so loving and surround us. And, and we use an intervention tool. Uh, it's called the Steps to Freedom in Christ. Hopefully, you know, maybe you've heard of that before. But one of those steps is, is how do we practice forgiveness to be released from these hurts and harms that have come upon us. And so she was taken through the Steps to Freedom in Christ. She goes, for me to forgive him meant so much because it meant I wasn't attached to that awful thing that happened to me anymore. And she said, but... About a month and a half ago, we got word back that there wasn't enough evidence to press charges. And she goes, to be honest, I was okay with that because it's not something that really bothered me anymore. I just, I was free. I'm a new person. But she said, I started noticing that he started showing up. I thought randomly at first. Once he heard the charges were dropped, he sort of reappeared. And he, she said, I would see him as I was leaving school or if my mom would send me to the grocery store, or if I would go to the post office, and she said, I think he is stalking me. And I'm like, oh my goodness, are you scared? Are you sick? She goes, I'm not scared, really. And she goes, I don't really know about safety, but she said, I'm so mad. I'm so worn down, because every time I see him, it takes me back to that place. And she said, I don't know what I'm going to do. I said, I know what we're going to do. We're going to pray. Yeah, I pray, I pray. I said, no, we're going to pray for God to do something specific because we've got Jesus' word right here. You ask it in my name, I will do it. She said, well, what are we going to ask? I said, well, there's another part of Scripture where Jesus says if two or more are gathered in his name, he's not only there, but whatever you bind on earth can be bound in heaven. So we're going to pray that this dude is bound. She says, well, what does that mean? I said, well, have you ever seen a bow constrictor and how they work? They sort of circle their prey and then they start squeezing. That's what we're going to do. We're going to pray for God to just squeeze in on this guy. She goes, we can do that? I said, he's lucky. As a father of daughters, he's lucky he's getting off on that, right? So we, so we agree together in prayer and say, we just bind, you know, this person, and, and we just amend it and left it at that. Next day on campus, that kid hit the door of that campus. She's like, walk, she's floating, and her countenance is radiant, and the, and the other teens are sort of circling around her, and you could tell there's just a lot of, you know, a lot of talk, a lot of talk and stuff. And she's like, I want to talk to you, I want to talk to you. I said, okay, okay, we'll, we'll set time. So at the end of the day, she and I reconnect, and she is just on cloud nine. I said, you got to tell me what's going on. She said, I woke up this morning early. The phone was ringing in the house. My mom answered it. And a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend who knows the mom of this jerk said, yesterday afternoon... He started to get really troubled, and he was worried about his life. And as the day got longer, he became so gripped with fear that he was convinced that he was in danger, and he needed to leave, and he left the reservation, headed for Texas, and he said, I'm not coming back. And this kid was telling that story to all of her peers, and the one-time disruptor was giving glory to God, the Father, and the Son, and these kids were having their faith increase that maybe this isn't a white man God that's being pushed at them. And it was astounding because this is who God is. This is who God is as he works through his people, as, he, as people allow him to come and to comfort them. So I'm going to have Josh come up. And here's what I would say today. If your resiliency is low, 
then you need comforted. And I would suggest to you that the greatest comforter at all is the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That he will come alongside you and he will encourage you, he will help you. But here's the deal. you got to receive that help. And maybe for some of you, you know, you're sort of exploring the idea of Christianity and you can walk in here on a Sunday morning and get your coffee and get your sweets and sing a few songs and stuff, but maybe you're just not fully in yet. I would tell you that if you will just by a little bit of faith trust in this incredible Savior, it will turn things around for you. If you were just a little bit of faith, just realize that you don't have to go searching for him. He's on the hunt and he's found you. And just be open because he's here to empathize with you. He's got the assurance that you need and he will assist you. If you're here this morning and, and maybe you struggle emotionally and maybe there's been crisis and trauma that you have faced different times in your life, it just keeps haunting you from the past. It, it, you get a little bit of traction and it pulls you back. It knocks you down. It pulls you under. You have a Savior who will rescue you. You have a God who will comfort you. You have a God who will deliver you. And in the quietness of your heart right now, wherever you are, however you rated yourself from 1 to 10, I'm going to ask you to just have a short conversation with the Lord.